Hey everyone, Pastor Ryan here. So glad to be with all of you. So glad that you're here, that you're watching, that you're worshiping with us today. Today, uh, we're gonna be continuing our series uh, called Because God Is, I Am. It's a series where we've been digging deep uh, on the various attributes of who God is and how that impacts us, how that uh, should be defining us, how it should be shaping the way that we live our lives. And so far, we've looked at, at how God's eternal, Uh, We've looked at how he knows all things. We've looked at how he's uh, righteous and just and how he's present everywhere, that he's with us everywhere we go. And today we're going to look at the reality that God is love, that God is love. But before we go there, I I wanna share a story with you. It's it's a really, really old story and it's a little strange. It's a story uh, about a hunter a hunter who was was from a far, far away land. And this hunter uh, was not only renowned for his hunting ability, but he was renowned for for his beauty. He was was a beautiful hunter and he loved beautiful things. And not only did he love beautiful things, but but others, when they saw him, uh, they fell in love with him because he was so beautiful. And when others saw him, they were were so overwhelmed with his beauty, so much so that they they would do absolutely anything to prove their devotion to him and to his beauty, going so far as, as um, uh, taking their own lives. is pretty intense stuff. And so in one, one version of this story, one way it's told is that this hunter was walking in the woods uh, when this mountain nymph named Echo, and, and yeah, I, I just said mountain nymph named Echo because I told you this is a story and it's not real life, but this mountain nymph named Echo, she saw him and, and like others, she fell head over heels for him and, and started to secretly follow him around the woods. She was like this tiny little stalker. And the hunter, as he was going around the woods, he sensed that he was being followed, that he was being stalked by someone. And so he shouted out, he said, who's there? And Echo repeated him from her hiding place. And she said, who's there? And this went on back and forth for some time, but eventually she couldn't take it anymore. And she jumped out from where she was hiding and she revealed herself. She revealed her identity and and she attempted to embrace him, hoping that he would embrace her in return. But he pulled away and he pushed her away and told her to leave him alone. And this broke her little mountain nymph heart. And she was so heartbroken that she spent the rest of her life walking alone in the woods and nothing but an echo sound remained of her, hence her name, Echo. Now that's not where this story ends. It keeps going. There's another character. There's this goddess of revenge. Now, remember I told you, this is just a story. Keep following along with me. And this new character, she noticed the hunter's behavior and she decided to punish him for for his disregard, for his lack of love for others. And she did this one day by luring the hunter to this pond of water in the woods because the hunter was getting really thirsty. It was a hot summer's day and he was walking around the woods. And as he approached this pond, she got him to lean over the water and he saw his own reflection for the very first time. Because remember, this is an old story and mirrors weren't super common back then. And the hunter, he, he, he looked over the pond and he didn't realize that this was his own reflection. And, and in that moment, he fell deeply, deeply in love with himself as if it were someone else entirely. He tried to lure the reflection away, but he was unable to do that and unable to leave this beautiful person that he saw in the water. He wasted away his life until death, just uselessly longing after himself. Now, like I mentioned earlier, this is a really, really old story. It's actually an old Greek myth. It's the story of a a fictional character named Narcissus, where we get our word narcissist from. Narcissist means a person who has an excessive interest in or admiration of themselves. And 
Over the years, this story has been told of a fa- as a fable of sorts to warn against the dangers of being too preoccupied with yourself or of loving yourself too much. And I'm sure all of us, we've met a narcissist or two in our lives. It's not an admirable quality. I think by and large, we see it far more as a vice than a virtue, or, or at least we used to. Earlier this year, in, in January of 2020, there's this luxury uh, gym called Equinox, and they came out with this, this really kind of weird ad. And in this ad, a woman dramatically tells the same exact story I just told you, the story of narcissists to a group of young kids in a museum who are gathered around a, a painting of narcissists. However, when she gets to the spot in the story where he's preoccupied with himself in the pond, instead of pivoting to a place of self-destruction, the woman telling the story says that, quote, self-worship turned him into a gift for others. In essence, saying that his self-worship was actually a benefit to other people around him. And then she poses this question to the kids in the museum and and us watching the ad, the the, the audience. She asks, quote, does that not make self-obsession the most selfless act of all? And the tagline for the ad for the gym is make yourself a gift to the world. Pretty wild, huh? Pretty weird. You know, when we encounter a piece of culture like that, We need to be careful not to simply look out and and just analyze it, but we also need to be diligent to turn our gaze inward and examine ourselves to see if we've believed this lie in, in any way, shape, or form. I'd imagine that most of you watching right now would totally disagree with the idea that self obsession is the most selfless act of all. But I can imagine that all of us have in some way believed a lesser version of that lie. If a narcissist is someone who believes the world revolves around them, then then all of us at different times and in different ways, we've been been guilty of that. We're we're all guilty at times of being overly preoccupied with ourselves. We've all um, leaned over that pond, so to speak, and seen our own reflections and, and thought to ourselves, that person right there, that person is the most important person in the world. And, and, and when we believe this lie, it shows up in, in, in many ways. We, we demand that our needs be met. Uh, we demand that our rights not be infringed upon. And when we don't get our way, we become uh, impatient. We become frustrated. We become angry. Uh, we, we say things that we shouldn't say. Uh, we type things that we shouldn't type. We, we think things that we shouldn't think. And so, so what does all of that have to do with the attribute of God we're looking at today? What does all of that have to do with the fact that love is an essential attribute of the God that we worship? Well, well, here's the connect, and it's our big idea. It's, it's this, because God is love, I am finally free to forget about myself. Because God is love, I am finally free to forget about myself. If our heart's natural tendency and the culture's increasing tendency is to push us to think more highly of ourselves, to grow more preoccupied with ourselves, to to love ourselves more. I believe that God's love propels us in the exact opposite direction, in the better and more freeing direction of self-forgetfulness. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and grab those now and open up to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we'll be starting in verse 7. 1 John was uh, written by the apostle uh, John in response to some wrong beliefs that were rising up in some churches that the, that the true light, that the real answers people were looking for, that they were inside of them. 
And, and John uses this letter here to remind the church that that is not the case. That the truth is um, we are inherently sinful and the answer doesn't lie inside of us, it lies outside of us. It's found in repentance of sin and faith in Jesus and, and the spiritual rebirth that happens as a result of that. And then he takes some time in his letter to, to run through some different uh, tests to know if you've truly made this decision, if the reality is rooted in your heart. And multiple times, John gives what we can call the love test. And now this love test isn't something that like you take on Facebook where you find out who your true love is or, or how long your true love is gonna last, nothing like that. It's, it's a test of the genuineness of God's love in you. And that's what we find in 1 John chapter four. Let's go ahead and read that now. 1 John four, starting in verse seven, John writes this. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, and this is so important, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Because if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Do you think that John uh, had something in mind as he's writing this portion of the letter? John uses some form of the word love 14 times in those six verses. And I want us just to spend uh, some time right now on just three of those words. God is love. In verse eight, remember John says this, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so what does that mean? What does it mean that God is love? What does it not mean? And, and why is it so important? Well, a couple of points of clarification here. If you're taking notes, first of all, the fact that, that God is love, it's, it's not the whole story about God as far as the Bible goes. And, and here's why. You see, some take these words, that God is love. They take them completely out of context and they make this statement to be the definitive statement on the essential nature of who God is. They make the mistake of equating love with God. Essentially, they've reversed the statement, believing not only that, that God is love, but also that love is God. But, but, but you see, if... If that's true, then it is the only true thing about God. Uh, no longer is God eternal. Uh, no longer is he holy or omnipotent or omnipresent or a righteous judge. If we wrongly think that because God is love, then love is also God, then God is literally only love. And if that's the case, then love is the one thing we can worship. No longer do we worship the God of the Bible, but we are worshiping now a, a, a God of our own creation. And, and unfortunately, I believe that many of us today, we've, we've fallen into this trap of worshiping love and, and that this love is increasingly directed, not outward toward others, but, but toxically inward toward ourselves. Uh, we need to understand that stating that God is love, what John is getting at here with these words, he's stating a fact. He, he's not offering an absolute definition of the, the comprehensive nature of God. It's... It's like this. It's like when you meet a genuinely nice person, a really kind person, and you say something like, she is kind. What you're not saying with that is you're not saying that that person and kindness are identical things. No one thinks you're saying that when you use those words. Same with the statement on God's love. The words God is love mean that love is an essential attribute of God. 
Love is something true of God, but it's not the whole truth about God. It's not the whole story about God as far as the Bible goes, because we know that he's also holy and that he's eternal and that he's omnipotent. However, um, a second point of clarification, uh, the fact that God is love can be seen is the whole story about God as, follow, as far as the follower of Jesus goes. And so, so let me explain this. While we know that love is not God, the fact that God is love has quite possibly the most amazing and massive implications for how we understand who God is and how we relate to him. Because God is love, uh, this means that his love finds expression in every single thing he says and does. And, and the knowledge that this love is for you personally as a follower of Jesus Christ, it has huge implications on how you live your life and, and, and getting you to a spot where you no longer live for yourself, a life of self-forgetfulness. Paul kind of gets at this in, in Galatians 2.20 when he says, the son of God uh, loved me and he gave himself up for me. When we believe this truth and understand this reality of God's uh, love for me and it's fully known, it's fully embraced by faith, I'm able to apply to myself the promise that God is working all things together for my good. Like what it says in Romans 8.28, not just some of the things, but all of the things. When I know and believe that the love of God uh, influences and permeates every single thing he does, I'm able to see uh, that everything that happens to me happens in order to express his love to me and to further his purposes in my life. E even when I can't understand uh, the what and the why behind certain events and certain happenings in my life, I can rejoice and I can have peace knowing that God's love is operating behind them and through them. Again, even when humanly speaking, things appear to be going uh, uh, so, so wrong. And so while other components of the nature of God are, they are extremely important for us to know and extremely important for us to believe, I think we're a boat without a rudder tossed around a stormy sea if we don't have, first of all, a right understanding of what it means that God is love, but also secondly, and perhaps more importantly, a personal encounter with God's great love and a grounding belief that this love is, is, is for me, it's for you personally. You see, listen, without an intimate personal understanding of God's love for you, uh, you will forever be struggling with a preoccupation with yourself, forever struggling uh, with insecurity, trying to prove yourself, struggling with the desire to put yourself first always. What God's love does is it liberates you from that. And so instead of speaking of God's love in, in general terms, I want us to take a look at some of the specifics of God's love. I want to look at five specific things about God's love that will, by the power of God's spirit in our time together right now, help liberate us from our narcissistic preoccupation with ourselves. And, and here's the first thing I want us to see about God's great love. God's love is unearned. God's love is unearned. So much of, of our striving and our work and, and so much of the reason why we put ourselves first is, is we just wanna be noticed and we just wanna be loved. You know, why do, we, why do we highlight our successes and our wins on social media? Why do we uh, show off our home improvement projects online? Why do we post pictures of the meals we make? Why do our children show us their artwork and want us to put it up on the refrigerator? Why do they quickly look to find their parents after they get a base hit or, or score a goal? Why, why do we do these things? Well, it's because all of us were desperately looking for affirmation. We're looking to others to validate us and to love us. Now, the amazing thing about God's love is that it is totally unearned. 
completely. Romans 5.8 says this, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't withhold his love until we've done something to earn it. He doesn't turn it on and off depending on our daily performance. What does God's word say? God's word says that while we were still sinners, while we were in rebellion to God, while we were opposed to him, you see, not only is God's love unearned and undeserved, it's actually the exact opposite of what we deserve, which as violators of his law, as sinners is condemnation. It's complete and total eternal separation from him forever. Uh, another way of, of looking at it is like this. While our love for other people, our spouse, kids, friends, whatever, usually it's sparked by something we see in that person. But God's love is different. God's love is totally free. It's totally uncaused. God loves you because he simply has chosen to love you uh, for no other reason other than it pleases him to do so. And so in a world where we are so desperately trying to earn the approval of others, their love, their affection, would this first reality of God's love already begin to, to settle our anxious and fearful hearts that God's love for you is completely and totally unearned, totally undeserved. Here's the second thing I want us to see about God's love. God's love is specific. God's love is specific. I, I've got three kids and as they get older, I'm made more and more aware of the fact that if they're going to experience my love for them in any kind of real, meaningful, tangible way, it has to be specific. Uh, the, the, the days when I could just simply show my love to them by, by feeding them or rocking them to sleep or tickling them or playing with them as they crawl on the ground, those days are long gone. My, my, my love for them has to be targeted to them individually by, by learning about them and engaging with them where they're at. And, and let me tell you, it is significantly more difficult, more work. And honestly, uh, at times I don't feel entirely equipped for it. And, and I feel like I fail at it a lot, especially as we are on the cusp of, of the teenage years. You guys can be praying for us on that which all of that to say makes the fact that God's love is specific, that it's a specific love for individuals all the more amazing and, and incredible. A.W. Tozer said this, that, that God does not love populations. He loves people. He loves not masses, but individual men and women. Uh, God's love is not a vague love that's randomly scattered to everyone in general and no one person in particular. Rather, um, because God is, is all-knowing, because he's omniscient, because he's omnipotent, he's able to specify his love toward individuals in order to benefit them particularly and individually. Paul writes about this when he is writing to the Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, he says this, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. So there he's highlighting individual selection as the first fruits or from the beginning or from the start or before creation, he's expressing intentionality there to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. And these are the individual benefits that we reap from the very specific love of God. You know, not, not only is God's love toward us unearned, but this divine and perfect and amazing love is specifically directed toward you as an individual with the purpose to uniquely bless you, a blessing that God has had in mind for you from, from all eternity. God's love for you is specific. How amazing is that? God's love is undeserved. It's specific. A third thing about God's love is this. God's love is entangled. God's love is entangled. Now this one is strangely phrased and, and that's on purpose. Here, here's what's meant by this. 
Um, husbands, you've probably heard this phrase uh, countless times before. Happy wife, happy, yes, life, life. I could hear you guys through the camera. Happy wife, happy life. That, that is to say that one's life as a husband ceases to be happy when one's wife ceases to be happy. And all of the wives said, amen, right? Uh, in, the, in the best and most healthy way of understanding that little phrase, uh, that, that should be true of our marriages. And by God's grace, in, in a genuine way, it's true of mine. So for example, uh, my life can be going along great. Uh, I could have a great day at work and come home and things are awesome. But if my wife has had a difficult day, if she's had a bad meeting at work or a counseling case is going poorly or, or the kids are being really difficult and she is not doing well, then, then I'm not doing well. I'm not truly happy until she is truly happy. My joy is entangled with her because I've chosen to identify and, and to use that weird word again, entangle my well-being with her because I love her. An interesting thing about God is, is that while we can certainly say that his goal in all things is, is, is his own glory, that he'd be known and, and, and admired and adored, uh, this idea that God is going after his glory, I don't think it's the complete truth about God's intent here on earth. God's desire for his glory, I think it also must be paired with and coupled with the fact that for reasons entirely unknown to us and entirely unexplainable by us, he has fixed his love on individuals who don't deserve his love. Then he's voluntarily bound up his own happiness with theirs, that his love has entangled his well-being with ours. Uh, J.I. Packer, the theologian, he puts it more eloquently this way. He writes this, uh, God was happy without man before man was made. He, he would have continued happy had he simply destroyed man after man had sinned. But, but as it is, he has sent his love upon particular sinners. And this means that by his own free voluntary choice, he will not know perfect and unmixed happiness again until he has brought every one of them to heaven. And so, so God sets his love on us and saves us not only for his own glory, but also for his gladness. It's why Jesus says in Luke 15, 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And it's why Jude can write in verse 24 that there is going to be great joy when we're finally brought without blemish into his presence on that last day. All, all of this is because God's love is entangled with our well-being. And he has for reasons that evade our limited mind's ability to understand. He's, he's chosen to identify with us in a radical way. And so God's love is unearned. It's specific. It's entangled. A fourth thing, uh, God's love is generous. God's love is generous. Generosity and, and the generosity of one's love specifically is, is measured not against how much one actually gives, but it's against the backdrop of what one is actually able to give. For instance, I think of the story in the gospels of the widow who only gave two mites, uh, a, a seemingly inconsequential amount, but she was seen as exceedingly generous because it was all that she was able to give. And, and, and so follow me here. That would mean then, that for God to actually give generously, it would be exceedingly overwhelming how much he would give to show his love because, because as the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God, um, the measure of his generosity would be of infinite proportions. And with that as the condition, God's specific and individual love to us as sinners is so incomprehensibly generous because this is what he gave. He gave his one and only son, Jesus, 
to us, to die for us in order to unite us to himself for all eternity. That's the generous love of God on display. That's the extent to which God loves you. It's it's why Paul's jaw drops and his knees fall to the ground. And and he prays for us that, that we would be able to, in Ephesians, he writes, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God's love surpasses knowledge and to know the generosity of God's love, we must fix our eyes on the cross of Christ as irrefutable proof that God generously loves us, that he loves you. God's love is generous. And finally, this last thing, God's love is relational. God's love is relational. Our God has always been a relational God, always. He, he moved out of relationship with his Trinitarian self toward, toward others. We see this, we see him do this with Abraham in Genesis 17, saying, I will be your God and your offspring after you. And, and we see this relationship come to fruition in Genesis 18. God calls Abraham not a, not a servant, but he calls him a friend. That's how relational God is. And, and then Paul later in the New Testament, he writes in his letter to the Galatians that, that, that we, that you and I, we can inherit this very same promise and its benefits if we repent of our sin and place our faith in the finished work of Jesus. He, he writes this, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God's love extends to you individually in your undeserved state to engage you in a permanent, unbreakable relationship with himself, the God of the universe. And in that relationship, not only are you a servant or a son or daughter, you are perhaps most importantly, first and foremost, a friend. You are a friend of God. Jesus himself, he calls you this, John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And this is just an amazing reality of the love of God. Look what he does for us. He creates friendship with God for us, real relationship with our redeemer. A.W. Tozer, again, to quote him, he, he says this about God's desire uh, for friendship with us, for intimate relationship with us. He says this, that modesty may demure at so rash a thought, but audacious faith dares to believe the word and claim friendship with God. We do God more honor by believing what he has said about himself and having the courage to come boldly to the throne of grace than by hiding in self-conscious humility among the trees of the garden. And so even now, would we come boldly to God, believing that he is love and that he deeply loves us, that he deeply loves you. This is not some far off fantasy. It's actually the realest thing you can know. That God is love and his love is unearned. It's specific, it's entangled with your well-being. It's, it's generous, it's relational. And if all of this is, is true, and let me tell you, it most certainly is, then and I think we need to stop for a moment. And we, we need to ask ourselves some questions. Like, like, why would I ever grow frustrated or upset at the circumstances that God's placed me in? Or uh, why would I grow fearful or unnecessarily sad? Or why would I grow distrustful of him or distrustful of his purposes for me if his love for me is as real as he says it is? Or, or, or why is it that, that, that I grow cold in, in my passion for him or my affections for him, this God who has given literally everything to make me his? Why, why, why do I allow other far more trivial things to get in the way of, of my devotion and my enjoyment of him? 
You know, when we understand and when we believe that God is love and that this essential aspect of the nature of God is, it is laser focused on us. When we encounter that and believe that and live like it's true, uh, then we can become unshackled from the bondage of self. No longer do we need to be preoccupied with ourselves. No longer do we need to be these little mini narcissists and, and place ourselves first. But because God is love and because he loves you, you are finally free to forget about yourself and devote yourself to, to the glory of God and, and, and to the good of others. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of love. We know that you are a God of, of holiness, a God of justice, a God of power, but you are also a God of love. And we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us as a God of love, first and foremost, through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've made a way for us to have relationship with you through Jesus Christ. That if we ever question our love for you, all we have to do is look to the cross of Jesus to see your love, to see how generously you have loved us. Lord, right now, I pray that we would experience and encounter your love in a real way and that it would change us, that it would shape us, that we would finally forget about ourselves and continue to, to, to devote ourselves to you and love others, putting you first, others second, and ourselves last. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.